This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ramdas Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and today I'm sharing a conversation with the lovely Mirabai Star. Mirabai and I had a chance to meet at the most recent uh, Ramdas Mersion Retreat at Hanuman Gardens in California. And so before the retreat, Began, we took some time to talk and discuss her most recent book, Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation, along with several other uh, really beautiful topics. And I love uh, listening to Mirabai's teaching and reading her books uh, because of the poetry and the weaving together of so many different mystical traditions uh, that she does in both of her writing and in her teaching and in her life. I hope very much that you will enjoy this conversation and please do go to the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com where you'll find the Amazon link to purchase Mirabai's books. And if you purchase through that link, a portion of the proceeds do come back to the Be Here Now Network to support the Shakti Hour and all the other podcasts and offerings here. Please also remember to subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes. And thanks very much for listening. So I'm here with the beautiful Mirabai Star. And I thought it might be interesting to just offer us a little bit of information about your name to start. Mm. What a great opening question, Melanie. So Mirabai was a 16th century Indian mystic, Rajasthani princess, actually, who was born into wealth and power and privilege and voluntarily abdicated all of that, relinquished all of that to follow her beloved Lord Krishna um, for her entire life, she sang and danced to her beloved. So her poetry is still very much sung and spoken and honored throughout India. And uh, when I was 13, I lived in New Mexico, and the, the school that I went to in Taos was run by the Lama Foundation at that time. 
And so we spent a lot of time up at Lama where Ramdas, of course, created Be Here Now. And uh, so let's see, this would have been 1974. So it was probably, so it was right after Maharaji left his body. And the atmosphere was so charged with the energy of Neem Karoli Baba. Um, and many of the teachers at our school, or several of the teachers at our school and people who lived at Lama were Neem Karoli Baba followers. So there was a lot of satsang gathering uh, in that area. And they were our teachers, our drama teacher, our music teacher. And so the children, we wrote a play about the life of Mirabai that um, Suryan Sarada brought back a comic book from India. You know those comic books of the saints and gods and goddesses. And so using the comic book, we, the kids, wrote this musical play about the life of Mirabai, and I played Mirabai. And after that, I was given the name by my friends, and then that summer, Ram Dass kind of gave it the stamp of approval. So I'm 56. I was I was 13. That's, that's a long time ago. But that connection with her energy, the energy of Mirabai, her, it's so perfectly resonated with with my soul then and still Hmm. that the devotional quality for sure the artistic impulse the expression um uh, in word and song that's so much matches my being but um more than that there's something about what she calls me to be and it it has a lot to do with embodiment because I have a tendency to go out, you know, get Mm. me out of this place. It's hard here. Mm. And she brings me back again and again, which I think is the way of the feminine. And how, I have a couple questions come to mind. Mirabai herself was a poet. So in that time in India, just thinking of women in India in that time, she was educated enough to to know to write she was educated to write read and write and or do you think it was a was it just devotional prayer from her heart or yeah I think it was I don't think these were composed pieces I think they were spontaneously uttered Mm. and (laughs) written down by her followers very much like Mavlana Jalaluddin Rumi who we know as Rumi or Hafiz or the the other ecstatic Sufi poets I think it was very much in Kabir in India very much in that lineage of spontaneous arising of love language. Huh. I first learned about her through the Indian singer, Lata Mangeshwar. Oh. And I do, there's a sample of her at the beginning of all the Shakti hours. But that's how I came to her, her poetry was through that voice. Mm. And it's so beautiful. And I don't have to know even the meaning of it to experience the sweetness of that romance really and it's sweet fire is what it is it's not sweet softness Mm. i mean there's an element of tenderness for sure but it's it's fiery and Mm. and electrical and wild and unleashed Mm. and how you said since you were 13 to 56 how has your relationship to that name shifted over time? Hmm. Well, you know, I think that often on our spiritual paths as we develop and mature, there is this 
natural kind of movement toward a non-dual consciousness. Mm. Um, And so for a while, I experienced my bhakti devotional nature as being different from this impulse I had toward undifferentiated states of consciousness. It didn't bother me that they were different. It wasn't like a conflict. In fact, I sometimes felt like they're supposed to be conflicted, the bhakti path and the non-dual path, but they never have been for me. They've always been both very natural and in a sense integrated from from the get-go. But what I guess I have found is that I'm reclaiming my devotional nature at this stage in my life. And that I don't have to deny that I'm madly in love with a God that I don't believe in necessarily with my, with my analytical mind. I don't really have a belief system that I subscribe to. And that's okay with me. And so, but I do have this passionate love that is no less um, alive for me at 56 than it was at 13 I mean, it's different, but it's also not. It's this timeless kind of uh, ecstatic and also painful longing. And for years, I thought the, there was that maybe the longing is, is, because I was told by some of my spiritual teachers that longing is somehow an artifact of illusion, hmm. that, that we suffer from the illusion of separation. You're not separate. I mean, I... I'm small. I'm five feet tall and about 103 pounds. So I don't take up a lot of space in this world. And I just somehow that my physical form seems to invite a certain kind of patronizing. <laughs> um, I don't know. It elicits that sometimes in people, especially men. And so I've often been kind of told that uh, this longing thing, the Mirabai longing, is, is somehow... Uh, um, an immature expression of the spiritual life and that the the higher truth is non-dual, like Mirabai. You're already there. You already have it. There's nothing to long for. It is you. It is in you. It is you. It's like blah, blah, blah. I know that. <laughs> but my heart is on fire. Yeah. And I know that's real. And the longing itself mm. is the connection, as all mm. of the great mystics of all spiritual tr- traditions mm tell us and they don't usually tell us that in essay form by the way right they tell us in poetry and in song it's the language of the heart cannot be denied you can't you can't convince the heart that longing is somehow a problem (laughs) you know it um So this was 13 when you got this name, this initiated, and you're saying that this fire was in your heart from them is still there now, and you're reclaiming it. But I was curious when I was reading your your memoir about the time before that, and I wondered if you, because you had this big event with the loss of your brother, and I wondered if you sensed this about yourself before then did you like when did you begin to know this part of yourself yeah well so my brother Maddie died when he was 10 and I was 7 and he died of cancer of a brain tumor so it was 
well, for my mom, it was extremely fast. It was less than a year from diagnosis to death. But my point being that unlike my own experience of losing a child in a car accident where I had no preparation, my parents, although it was horrific, experienced um, the the gradual letting go of their child and me of my brother. Um, and so there was this quality of, as he got sicker and sicker, the the veil kind of got thinner and thinner. Mm. And I was only a child. I was seven years old. But I felt myself, like in retrospect, of course, not at the time. I didn't have the reflective consciousness. But it, but looking back, I felt that I was abiding with him in this kind of numinous space. Mm. So by the time he died, that space was very real for me and continued to be available but I had no language for it not only because I was a child but because nobody could talk nobody was talking about that and and so each subsequent death and I've had a, an incarnation so far <laughs> that's been marked by an unusual yes. <laughs> number of deaths each one w- gave me access mm. to that holy holy ground mm. that death can invite us into Hmm. and so uh, although I've had many tragedies I've also had each one has been an opportunity to make my home in this sacred space somehow and so yes my spiritual life has always been intimately entwined with death and death has been a doorway a gateway a, a passage into that space and I also of course lost my so the other part of the Mirabai story is that my first love, Philip, mm-hmm. was killed in a gun accident right before the Mirabai play. And so when I played Mirabai as a 13-year-old girl at Lama, I was already in that blasted open space from Philip's death. So they've always been entwined. Yeah. We are at Hanuman Gardens in preparation for the second uh, Ramdas immersion retreat. And so we're sitting in this beautiful room and it's the desert and it's very hot. So we have all the windows open. So any sounds that you're hearing about are just our sounds of the, the outside world, but we, um, we're going to keep them in just to keep it real. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, I, I had this experience um when I was five, my grandmother died, and I remember being at the the funeral in this very conservative Lutheran farming town church, and and um, and they someone sang started singing a hymn, and I started wailing as a five year old. Yeah. I started wailing and I was oh. inconsolable, but I didn't, I had, I, so I'm, I'm relating to that, that you're not f- grasping death and life either. You're still in a very playful, imaginative state at that moment in your life. And so that, that moment of openness to connect directly yeah. with the, what did you say? Numinous? Numinous. Yeah. Like that kind of space was there. And I, I, and it was very, no one was expressing any emotion. Oh. And I just remember being hit by the song, by the hymn, and the and that just 
breaking out. Oh, I feel like crying just <laughs> listening to that. And that yeah. was so your connection as a musician. Yeah. There's there's also a similar kind of thing that when your heart gets blasted open. Yeah. I mean that that music can become the portal f- to that sacred space. Of course, we all know about the connection with music. It's why sacred music is so essential to every spiritual tradition. But for you, it was also connected with pain. Yeah. And the beauty of that state. Yes. The the, the intimacy. Yes. Mm. And to the point of it being within any tradition. So, you know, that hymn written, I want to say it was How Great Thou Art, but mm. so it's a devotional hymn, mm. <laughs> right? And and so in a way that freed freed me from religion yes. in that moment to go into the spirit. Right, beautiful. And, and so... But that's a very vulnerable place. Yes. To be. And I think the feminine, you know, this is your show. The feminine, I think, is is so much about being vulnerable. And it's not fun, necessarily. It's not right. comfortable. It, it can be a lot of fun. But it's <laughs> not comfortable. It's not comfortable to the ego. And it's such a, I mean, there's a, a wiring, I feel, to the, to the heart, to the emotional heart that that is part of the beauty of mm-hmm. the feminine <laughs> capacity but but like you said not necessarily fun like to be to be present to those those emotions and so that longing that you're talking about like <sighs> feels to me when you're sharing about it like a longing for to just be absorbed in that. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. It's you know, it's not it's to go somewhere else or to mm. be something different, but the longing to for for wholeness, for oneness. Precisely. It's the longing itself becomes the energy of union. And I think that's why bhakti yoga is a yoga. I mean, yoga of course means path of union or path to union with the one. And so not only is it a valid path, it's, it's probably the most potent of all of the, all of the yogas because that, um, the shakti of yearning sends us into the arms of the one where our individuality then, of course, dissolves and we become one with the object of, of our heart's deepest desire. So it doesn't do any good to be told that there's something pathological about our desire for God or our feeling of separation. The pain of separation is not a problem. Yeah, you know, and I think, um, you know, what I also what I love about your story and, and your telling of it in your book is the honesty of, of all the relationships. Hmm. Right. Relationships are not an obstacle. Right. And that working through that connection on the physical plane in the material realm with one another. Yes. Is your own journey. And I think that 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 might be another feminine 
yes. aspect of spirituality that the, the monastic life is, is, is available, obviously, to women and men, but that the crucible of relationship is so much our playing field. Yes, it is so feminine. It's tantric. It's shakti. It's you're you're absolutely right. And and do I always want to hang out here? No. In fact, I think my whole life, Melanie, since I was a girl, I've wanted a monastic life. And it's not my karma. It is not my way. And and it's not only per my personal karmic configuration. I think, I think it's also about being a woman and being embodied and being relational and finding the the spiritual um, life right here in our bodies and our relationships and our communities and that somehow for me to check out of it even though it's tempting it's not the work that I've been given to do or that many of us are being called to and we really get that it's right here yeah and I'm, I'm just sensing in that too this capacity to expand and to give and to see you know where is there is there more to give you know with all these all the the losses in your story and and just with life itself <laughs> and the demands that come there's something um inspiring about being backed into a place where you have to continue to give mm, backed into <laughs> it yeah so that you're so that you're forced to source the eternal mm, beautifully said yeah what's that like for you i mean how do you keep <laughs> stepping up i was fighting the place of true giving i think mm, yeah. i think i had had um exhausted the learned uh, role of the woman giving. Yeah. Right. The kind of the surface give till you are exhausted, kind of make sure everybody else is taken care of first kind of the thing. martyr. Yeah. The martyr mother thing, mm -hmm. managing martyr mother thing. And, and I, I think I just have moved into that place of, Oh, but this, the actual giving, the actual capacity to give is something very different. Yes. And it, it doesn't even have a lot to do with these day-to-day -day things. It's a much deeper calling of, of offering. That's is beautiful. resonating? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, it is. And, and so I think we, the, the whole key, I think, is being true to our nature. You know, mm -hmm. We're all actually different. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we try to squeeze ourselves into the boxes that we think are spiritual or sacred activism or any kind of activism, um, we have these notions, these preconceived notions of what it means to be of service. And, and they sometimes prevent us from actually finding what is our true task in this world and finding how to reconnect with that which resources us, as, as you say, that, that inner... Re, um, replenishing that somehow we're, we feel guilty if we find ways to like for me okay for me that monastic inclination I've had all my life is there's something true about it and so even though I'm really committed to embodiment to sacred activism to showing up um, I also know that I have a deep thirst for the quiet 
And so I make sure, oh, I can't even help it anymore. My soul demands that there is quiet built into my life. So when I'm home between, tra I travel and teach a lot. When I'm home, I don't have the radio on. I don't, I, I'm not even playing, and I love music. I often don't even have music on because I have this deep need for simplicity, silence, and solitude. And that's where I go when I need to refill, which is quite often. <laughs> and that's okay with me. It's I get I get it now that that's, that's what my soul requires in order to step up. Yeah, I mean, in your in your story, it it doesn't not to trivialize it at all, but I it felt like a um, an action movie or a, or a <laughs> video game of just like if you were having to conquer all these different things just one after the other. It just felt like you were running a marathon. Mm. And, and, um, I'm wondering, you're talking about now having this solitude, having quiet and having these moments of, of recharge to go back out. How does, how has that evolved for you? I mean, what were you sourcing through all of this trauma of your life until this place? How, you know, how has that evolved for you in taking care of yourself and, and showing up? Poetry, music, hmm. art. Hmm. The arts have always been the wellspring that has fed me. So yeah, we've talked a few, alluded a few times to my memoir. So it's called, and you'll probably, you probably have already introduced it, but just to reiterate, it's Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. And so you're right, it's, it's a loss after loss, not just deaths, although there are plenty of those, but loss of innocence, loss of virginity, loss of community. Um, there are many losses in this book that are catalysts for a deeper and deeper surrender. And, and the reason it's called Caravan of No Despair is not because it's a litany of all the shitty things that have ever happened to me so that people will, you know, feel sorry for me or think I'm special. It's, it's, a, it's my affirming my participation in the human condition that we, that we all share. And the title, Caravan of No Despair, comes from that famous Rumi uh, couplet, Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Even if you have broken your vows a thousand times, come, come again, come. This is actually inscribed on, on Rumi's tomb in Konya, in Turkey. It's, we all belong we all belong, and we've all broken our vows a thousand times. Hmm. And yet, ours is not a caravan of despair. We are in this together. We are on this journey together, and it's a journey that is infused with poetry, with beauty, with yearning, and also with belonging. Hmm. That's lovely that... But I, you know, still am struck by your individual strength in the midst 
of this story. And not everyone in the story, not all the characters rise to the occasion. Right. Right. Yeah. So I it's interesting to me um how held in that light your story seems to be through <laughs> through all the twists and turns and ups and downs mm-hmm. and i'm 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 curious if it felt that way to you like if there was a knowing in you that you were held through all of that mm. or when did that become a knowing for you or has it mm. Well, you know, I've had a lot of good teachers and mm-hmm. been exposed to a lot of teachings. As I mentioned, I was, well, I was 14 when I got the name Mirabai, but I was 13 when I really started on this spiritual path by virtue of just being plunged into it at Lama Foundation. But I had, a, I was exposed to a lot of great dharma. Mm-hmm. And I had that to rest in, even though I didn't know it consciously, even as recently as the death of of my daughter Jenny uh, 15 years ago when I'd been on a spiritual path for quite a long time, I was 40 at that point, I I didn't consciously recognize that I was drawing on, on all of the teachings, mm-hmm. but of course I was resting in them because they were there and they were available to me. But Melanie, the main one was not knowingness, the holiness of not knowing, of the mystery. And I knew just enough to know that I knew nothing and that my only task was to let myself down into the arms of the mystery. And I think that has been my single um, greatest source of healing and transformation. And that's just so brave to me. Mm. I mean, that just feels that you were born with this bravery mm. to, to allow yourself down on that, what's it called? Not a bungee. Mm-hmm. But the <laughs> yeah, the uh, bole I want to say, right? Um, yeah, when you repel on yes, a, a yeah. bole line or yeah. something, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it and it strikes me, you know, in more more and more of these conversations that I'm blessed to get to have mm. with beautiful women, it it really is. It really is like like the stories, like the myths like these mythical goddess creatures <laughs> and figures, characters that we get to be named after, um, that we each do come with this gift of our own, this mm. strength of our own, of our own teaching to, to run through the play of life right. with that yeah. and encounter, you know, cause I could, for, for me to, to, live your life if this character yeah <laughs> were put in that situation my response may would likely be very different and not lesser not it, not a problem right not a problem but a different story yeah and so living this present to each of our stories and sharing them is so valuable for everyone mm. yeah well and i will say as a grief counselor i have never sat with a bereaved person who I didn't experience as being incredibly brave and beautiful and willing to show up for the transformational experience. Because it's like, where else are you going to go? And I know many of you listening right now have experienced great losses 
and you know this holy space. And it's like we're not supposed to talk about it because it's supposed to be only sad, and yet it's the holiest. And also, it is the most sacred space we've ever known. Hmm. Yeah, I just think it's wonderful um, that you include trans- transformation in the title with, with loss. Hmm. And I'm, I would love for you to just share a tiny bit about what that word means to you and what that process is like to you. Cause people talk about transformation and, and it's different than just change. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> so what, what would you say is a transformation? And it, and it doesn't necessarily require volition. In fact, often our will is an obstacle to transformation. <laughs> yeah. Say more about that. I mean, there's a willingness involved. I, you know, I'm a translator of the, of the Christian mystics. So I'm, I'm a Jew from New York, or at least that's, you know, my parents are, and I was born in New York and they were refugees from that, from that world. But I grew up as a, as an, in a secular Jewish family that was in, uh, drawn to Hinduism, Buddhism, to the Dharma traditions and I, at a very young age, became f- deeply connected to Sufism, various Sufi orders, but knew nothing about Christianity until it really my 20s when I encountered the Christian mystics and just fell in love with them. And one of the things I love about Santa Teresa de Avila, St. Teresa of Avila, who I translate from the, from the 16th century Spanish, she was a contemporary of Mirabai, by the way. I love oh, that. Oh, really? Huh. My two girls. Huh. <laughs> um, what a coinky dink. So one of the things I love about Teresa Vavila and all the Christian mystics is they speak about this kind of co-creative relationship between God and the soul, mm-hmm. where we show up for the work of spiritual practice, but we're surrendering at the same time to grace. Mm-hmm. So it's this beautiful dance between willingness to be transformed, um, doing the work of purification in a sense, and yet knowing that we're not in charge and that grace is grace. It comes or it doesn't. And transformation happens or it doesn't. Mm. So there's a willingness to be transformed, but there's also an intention to meet the beloved halfway and do and do the work. And so I think that's what transformation is, is about. It's that combination of being present and allowing and not being in charge, knowing we're not in charge. Yeah, that... That really is a loving interpretation of, of transformation. <laughs> and it, it, it F, it's like that patience, you know, love is patient and kind. And, and it's so surrendered the way that you're putting it. Because I think transformation has become a buzzword, mm. like an, uh, a desired result. Right. Something that, you know, my... What if I just have loss and no transformation? What if I don't, yeah. you know, suddenly become something else, you know, yeah. <laughs> or take this and turn it into something else? And I love that that um, devoted witness to the process and allow that cr- co-creation to happen as it need be, you know. Mm. Well, because I personally can say I, I was in a felt like I was in a chrysalis for longer than I've wanted to be. You know? Yeah. And any attempt, as you said, any willful attempt to get out of that was just caused more pain. Yeah. And yeah, and each of us has that, that our, our own timing. 
And and it's often subtle. I think we're expect you know we mm. expect these dramatic enlightenment experiences, right. and yeah. lo and behold, um, I am just as neurotic as I used to be. Um, but I'm I, perhaps a little more aware of it. One, and definitely have more tenderness toward myself too. When I act out in all those ways that I thought I'd be long over with and above, you know, thought I'd be. I had these visions, of, these versions of what an enlightened being is. Like Ananda Mayama was my main one, <laughs> and uh, I remember saying to Ramdas recently on the phone, you know, when I when you met me and I was fourteen years old, my model of enlightenment was Ananda Mayama, and I was pretty sure by sixteen that would have <laughs> happened. And here I am, <laughs> at fifty six, you know, just as neurotic as ever. And and he said, but you you are you are Ananda Mayama, you know, you're you. That re- the reason you resonated with her is because that is exactly you know who your being is too, but it just looks way different than your little you know ego ex- expectations of what enlightenment looks like. In other words, I'm not an enlightened being by any sense, by <laughs> my own ver- version of reality or anyone else's external objective version, and yet my soul is who she is, and she is awake and connected even though my external personality part which is just as real and just as beautiful Mm. not to be discounted Mm. um it still suffers and struggles and misbehaves yeah and that's holy too yeah and that and this is all coming back to this the longing and the duality idea that all these things are happening together Mm. and that holding of the relationship the space for all these things to have a relationship within within your own being so the beauty of contemplative practice as well as devotional practice but contemplative practice that is silent sitting or silent walking or whatever it may be but the those practices that bring us into the present moment is that this enormous this vast spaciousness opens up whenever we set the intention to just be present, as fully present as we can be in the moment with what is, with exactly what is, mm. and then there's enough room for all of it. Can you, can you describe a bit about your experience of what that's like to sit in stillness and in presence and have everything be as it is? Would you like me to read a paragraph from my book? Sure. About that? Sure. With reticence at first, and then with mounting courage, I dared to mourn my child. From the very beginning, I suspected that something holy was happening, and that if I were to push it away, I would regret it for the rest of my life. There was this sense of urgency, as if turning from death meant turning from my child. I wanted to offer Jenny the gift of my commitment to accompany her on her journey away from me, even if to do so simply meant dedicating my heartbeat and my breath to her and paying attention. And so I showed up. When a feeling I did not think I could survive would threaten to engulf me, I practiced turning toward it with the arms of my soul outstretched, and then my heart would unclench a little and make space for the pain. 
years of contemplative practice had taught me just enough to know better than to believe everything I think. How to shift from regretting the past and fearing the future to abiding with what is, in this case, a totally fucked up thing, the ultimate fucked up thing. I sat with that. I did not engage in this practice to prove something to myself or anyone else. I was not interested in flexing my spiritual muscles. I did it for Jenny. My willingness to stay present through this process was an act of devotion. By leaning into the horror and yielding to the sorrow, by standing in the fire of emptiness and saying yes to the mystery, I was honoring my daughter and expressing my ongoing love for her. It was not mere mindfulness practice. It was heartfulness practice. Yeah. That speaks exactly to my question. Mm. <laughs> and and also to to devotion, to the devotional path, mm. and that, that the love and the longing for your lost daughter was held in that practice mm-hmm. as well. Right. And that's why I keep saying it's not... Yeah. Like death, grief, grief is not a problem to be solved. It sucks. I hate it. Yeah. And I hate that those of you listening have had to endure the losses that you carry. And also something else. Something. There is a, a, an infinite spaciousness in the heart that doesn't make it okay. This is not a spiritual bypass I'm talking about here. Like just meditate your way into this, you know, numinous realm where loss is an illusion. No, no, no. It's, it's about fully inhabiting the human condition, which is the holiest space I know. Otherwise we'd all be out there in the ethers with no egos and no bodies. Right. And it can be so difficult in that space to stay present. Um, at least in my experience, the biggest difficulty I've had in staying present during grief has been this part of me that is convinced it can change it. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. There's this, even though there's the f- there's a finality to it, there there. For me, there was difficulty staying present because there was a a desire. The desire to have it be otherwise was so strong mm-hmm. that then the will wanted to fix it. Exactly, and there's you know there's a chapter in the book um, called I think something like "Navigating the Landscape of Loss," in which I take Elizabeth Kubler Ross's five stages of of grief and kind of reimagine them as, as stations on the spiritual journey. And one of the things we learn is that in the bargaining phase, which is three, (laughs) um, and it's not a linear journey. And that's kind of what that chapter is all about is that the illusion of some kind of beginning, middle and end is, is, has become, is dispelled by showing up for what is, but bargaining is that part 
of this of the grief journey where the brain which is designed to solve problems is trying to solve the problem of death and so we get in this this monkey mind loop where we can't stop going over and over and over trying to make the outcome different than it is and and it's not an accident that the station of grief following bargaining is called depression um unfortunately i mean unfortunately named Mm. it's it's not depression it's it's the dark night of the soul it's that place of dropping down into the emptiness and surrendering it's the place where we finally allow ourselves to feel sorrow and there's nowhere else to go and so bargaining ultimately spins itself out Mm. and comes to rest in the darkness which is which is a kind of holding to come back to your question mm. earlier. Like, when do you feel, when did you feel held in all of this? I felt most held when I was most surrendered. Like I fucking give up. There's nothing I can do to make this different than it is. There is nowhere I can go. I surrender. And that's when I found myself held. And it wasn't like, Oh wow, there are arms holding me. It was very subtle. Yeah. But very real. Yeah. And in the poetry of that, like in poetry itself or in art itself, there's that the space, that gap in between it that is that. Right. And we're, we think we're conditioned to get away from those spaces. Yeah. 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 And in time has no has no relationship to time mm, no yeah. right. not in the way that we understand it yeah and when uh, we were at retreat in may ramdas said dying and sadhana are the same thing <laughs> really he said that that's <laughs> so great and it was um duncan had asked a question about how how do i get over my fear of death completely so there was a a lot of talking about and and Ramdas gave a beautiful um, explanation of the afterlife, but then he kind of wrapped it up to with that, and that's mm. been <laughs> something I've been working with. Say it again. Dying and sadhana are the same thing. And every spiritual tradition I know of, Melanie says some version of that of that annihilation is the path to union and my namesake Mirabai you know beautifully expresses that in her poetry the moth being drawn to the flame the lotus that she's she ends one of her poems by saying the single lotus will swallow you whole that's sadhana it's it's death and transformation Wow. Well, I have been asking everyone if to close, if they could give a piece of advice specifically to women and girls on the spiritual path. Mm. So we still, in spite of all of the great efforts of our mothers and grandmothers, we still seem to carry around this sense that we are not enough and that we're too much, both. I mean, talk about 
mixed messages that we're expected to grapple with and carry. What a burden. And so I, it's, I've been saying it throughout this conversation, and, and, and so I'll just reiterate that what we are, who we are, what we have, is not only not a problem, it is the God-infused, sacred ground that we walk on. You are enough. You're not too much. You're exactly right, just as you are. Great. And that is that surrendered place of being present to all that is. Exactly. Well, if this is any indication of the next few days, I think everybody's in for a treat. Thank you, <laughs> here, here at Hanuman Gardens. And um, please remember to go to the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com where you'll find the Amazon link to purchase Mirabai's books. And um, stay tuned. I know she's working on a new book right now. So stay tuned for that sometime next year. A book about the way of the feminine. Hello. <laughs> Wild Mercy. I think it's going to be called Wild, Wild Mercy. Mercy. Oh, I love that. Thank you. So thanks so much, Mirabai. Thank you, Melanie. You're so much fun to talk to. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.